Welcome to HealthCast, the heartbeat of health IT. I'm your host, Melissa Harris. Amid the many public health crises that we're facing right now, such as COVID-19, mental health is one of the biggest challenges that the country has been coping with for a while now. Nearly one in five adults in the United States live with a mental illness, and those at risk for mental illness have faced considerably more difficulty taking care of their mental health amid the COVID-19 pandemic. In fact, 40% of Americans have experienced distress in the pandemic, which has led to heightened cases of depression, anxiety, substance use disorder, suicide, and more. A large part of addressing mental health is around spreading awareness of research, resources, and practices that can help ourselves and each other. That's why here on HelpCast over the coming weeks, we're going to bring you a series of episodes that will spotlight the country's leaders in mental health work. That brings me to the first episode in this series. Today, we're taking a look at the National Institute of Mental Health, the largest federal agency that focuses on mental health issues. NIMH's director, Dr. Joshua Gordon, joins me to tell more about how COVID-19 has impacted the country's mental health what technologies and research are fueling the future of mental health research and treatment, and how we could seek help if we're in mental health distress. All right, Dr. Gordon, thank you so much for joining us here for Mental Health Awareness Month. Thank you for having me. So I just wanted to start with your institute and to give our listeners a moment to get settled in what your institute is doing. What is the role of the National Institute of Mental Health in advancing issues around mental health? And what have been some of your biggest priorities as an organization recently? The National Institute of Mental Health is the largest federal agency responsible for research around mental illness and approaches to prevention and treatment of illnesses. We support over 3,000 grants and contracts at universities and institutions all around the United States and indeed around the globe. Our Recent priorities obviously include the mental health impacts of COVID, which I'm sure we're going to talk more about. But we've also prioritized many other issues and approaches to mental health research. One of our most important priorities in the last few years has been suicide prevention research. As you may know, suicide rates have been increasing in the United States for nearly 20 years. And our Work there focuses on trying to understand how best to prevent suicide, how best to identify individuals at risk, and how best to um, direct them to care that we know works and provide access to that care. Other important priorities, for example, include basic neuroscience research that's aimed at understanding the genetic and environmental factors that contribute to risk for mental illness and using that information to improve our understanding of the underlying biology of mental illness, and also efforts to develop not just new treatments, but really new ways of approaching individuals with mental illnesses. For example, a big priority of late has been to use big data and computational approaches to understand our individual patients better, to do precision psychiatry, if you will by using the data to figure out how best to approach individual patients, how 
can we understand what's going on inside their minds and inside their brains that can help inform our clinical decision making. So those are some of our more recent priorities. That sounds really excellent, especially that big data aspect. Precision medicine is really, you know, the future of medical care. But before we go there, you know, COVID-19, of course, has been a, a big priority for you and for the country as a whole. And it has taken a, a big toll on the nation's mental health, you know, from the isolation to the stressors, from financial and medical situations. So what exactly has your institute been doing amid the pandemic in assessing the mental health? And based on any findings, what can people be doing to support themselves now throughout the pandemic? Well, the Institute has really been focused for a long time on understanding the impacts of disasters, traumatic events, and epidemics and pandemics on mental health, and importantly, developing ways to intervene to enhance resilience and reduce the adverse mental health impacts of these events. So from studies in the wake of natural disasters like Hurricane Katrina and prior epidemics, we've known sort of what to expect with COVID-19. And the research that we've seen come out since the start of this pandemic have indeed suggested that what we saw before is happening again. So we've expected, for example, a large number of people across the United States to experience symptoms of depression, anxiety, and other symptoms of mental distress in the context of the pandemic. And indeed, we're seeing somewhere around 40% of Americans expressing distress in the context of the pandemic. We also expect that many, if not most of these individuals will get better as the pandemic resolves. And it's probably too early to say whether that's really true. Another aspect of what we've learned from past experience, from past research, is that individuals who are most vulnerable will be affected most severely by a disaster or other traumatic event. And we are absolutely seeing that in the context of COVID. Minority communities, communities in rural areas, Native American communities, communities with low socioeconomic status, these are the communities that are hardest hit in the context of any disaster. And we are absolutely seeing that in the context of COVID. Rates of depression, rates of anxiety, rates of suicidal thoughts, they're highest in these vulnerable communities. What can people do to support themselves? Uh, depends a bit upon the severity with which they are affected. All of us would do well to increase our resilience by practicing coping mechanisms, such as eating well, sleeping well, engaging in exercise, and connecting socially with people around us. All of us, of course, have to sort of double down in order to be able to accomplish some of those coping skills in the context of the pandemic because of the challenges that we're facing in this context. But those are some of the things that we can all do. And then if we're severely affected, so affected by these symptoms that it's hard for us to work or care for our children or care for ourselves, that's when we think it's really important for people to reach out and get help, help from mental health professionals. Of course. You know, and talking about mental health is also an important part of, you know, normalizing people's ability to seek treatment or to feel like it's okay to get help. 
And since this is Mental Health Awareness Month, can you discuss why it's important to continue raising awareness about mental health issues? Yeah, it's really important to raise this awareness for several reasons. First, not everyone knows that if they're having challenges getting up, caring for their kids, if they're short of temper, if they are unmotivated, having trouble concentrating, not everyone knows that these can be functions of mental illness. Not everyone knows that stress can impair people's performance in these various ways, that it can impair their ability to handle the day-to-day tasks that they need to accomplish. So raising awareness around the, the mental health impacts of the pandemic can really help people understand that what they're going through may be a consequence of the stress that they're experiencing in their daily lives of an underlying mental illness and therefore seek help for it. So that's first and foremost the number one. The number two is that there's still a lot of stigma associated with having a mental illness and a reluctance on the part of many individuals, especially in some vulnerable communities, to seek out help. And so if we all are aware that the pandemic can be affecting us in these ways, causing mental distress, we're more likely to see it in ourselves. We're more likely to see it in others and either to seek out a treatment ourselves or to help others get the treatment that they need. Of course. And, you know, along those lines too, the National Institute of Mental Health is an institute that pioneers in research that helps us understand mental health better. So as you're making findings or the people you fund make discoveries, how does your organization communicate best practices or information and treatment for mental health into information that practitioners and people struggling with mental health can use? NIMH uses a number of different avenues to try to promulgate the findings that our research produces and get it into the hands of practitioners. We have a website that is very active that people can refer to with all kinds of information about a rich variety of mental illnesses and, more importantly, approaches that people can use to know what to do if they have uh, mental illnesses or mental distress. We also work with other federal agencies to ensure that their information is up to date with the latest research findings. And we work directly with advocacy organizations like Mental Health America or the National Alliance on Mental Illness to try to make sure that their constituencies are aware of the latest findings. And we also have an active social media presence like just about everyone else these days. In fact, our Twitter account at NIMHGov has well over a million followers and is one of the most trusted resources on Twitter to get information about health in general and mental health specifically. Excellent. You know, and other agencies work on mental health issues too, from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services providing coverage to the support systems and grants at the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Administration. So who are some of your key federal partners in addressing the country's top mental health challenges too? Well, you mentioned two of them for sure. And I can give you uh, some examples of how we've worked with CMS or SAMHSA to address mental health challenges. Let's start with 
CMS. When our research builds evidence for a specific practice that we want to encourage mental health care providers to engage in, we often turn to CMS because they're responsible for doing things like constructing billing codes so that people can get reimbursed for providing care and also defining the quality of care. One of the most effective ways to deliver mental health care to areas where there are shortages of mental health care providers is called collaborative care. And it is what it sounds like. Mental health professionals and care managers working with primary care providers to ensure that patients who come to those primary care providers have their mental health needs met. And CMS working with us was able to recognize that that is a service that's worth paying for. And they created billing codes so that collaborative care can reach people who are covered by Medicare and Medicaid. And often when they produce billing codes like that, it promulgates to private insurances as well. So that's one example of an intergovernmental agency cooperation to address mental health challenges. SAMHSA has really been instrumental in many similar efforts. In this case, SAMHSA provides grants to states to directly provide mental health care. And one of the most important developments in the last you know, five or 10 years for serious mental illness has been first, the discovery supported by NIMH research that an, a care model called coordinated specialty care is an effective way to provide care for individuals suffering from their first episode of psychosis. And SAMHSA took that data with the help of an appropriations from Congress to fund clinics that will provide coordinated specialty care to individuals who are experiencing their first episode of psychosis throughout the country. And now there are over 300 clinics providing this evidence-based model of care and literally thousands of individuals who have benefited from it. So those two organizations and others are really our key federal partners in helping us ensure that the research that NIMH supports impacts care. I want to also turn to technology. Since here at HealthCast, we often talk about health IT and innovation. You mentioned how big data is helping to get to precision telebehavioral care, but what technologies do you see as emerging as promising solutions or tools that can be effective in getting to better mental health care? It's a great question. There are so many to choose from in this way. The technological revolution has already had a huge impact on mental health care delivery in the context of the pandemic, right? Where everyone across all of medical care turned to remote health visits and nowhere was that more effective than in the behavioral health space? One quick example, federally qualified healthcare centers in California, these are healthcare centers that provide care to the most indigent amongst us. They saw an increase in behavioral health visits in the context of the pandemic when you know everybody was not had to cancel all their in-person visits. And why? Because they immediately switched to video and telephone health visits for behavioral health care. 
And so they were able to accommodate the increase in demand that we saw in the early days of the pandemic. That's just one example. Now, that's kind of old school technology at this point, right? Video calls and telephone calls. What's the future of technology in mental health? There are really three major areas where mental health care is going to be impacted by technology, and NIMH is supporting research in all three areas. One I already mentioned, which is using data to better understand our patients. And that includes things like developing biomarkers, that is, biological and behavioral methods of understanding what's going on inside someone's brain and using that to make predictions about how they might respond to a particular mental health treatment. So for example, you can take a large database of individuals who've had brain scans and use that information to ask, well, who's going to respond to this medicine versus that psychotherapy? So we're research right now is trying to use those kinds of data to better understand our patients and select them for given clinical pathways. The second technology is monitoring of our patients as they go through life. When you see a psychiatrist every week or two, or more commonly every month or two, that psychiatrist gets a snapshot of how you're doing. They're able to ask you some questions about how you've been feeling lately, how you've been sleeping, what kinds of symptoms you're experiencing and get an idea of how you're doing in the moment. But how you're doing today is not necessarily how you did last week or how you're going to do a week in the future. There's a lot of interest, a lot of studies showing the promise of using digital technologies to monitor individuals over time to get a better sense of how they're doing and also to make predictions about how they're going to do. So for example, if you have someone with bipolar disorder and you have them enter their emotions on a daily basis, and then also supplement that information with with locomotor activity, how much are they walking, how much are they lying down, how much are they exercising, and then also some activity that in terms of how much they're texting or how fast they're able to type you can make predictions about whether they are about to enter into a manic episode or a depressive episode, and that will hopefully enable us to manage their illness better. And then thirdly, technology can help actually deliver therapy. There are several good evidence-based solutions out there that help psychotherapists, for example, deliver cognitive behavioral therapy in a very effective fashion where a lot of the exercises that individuals use and the practice they need to do is guided by a cell phone, by a smartphone app, or by a web-based experience. What we're finding from that research is that these tools can be very, very effective, and they're most effective when they are actively managed in concert with a therapist, as opposed to just a one-off app that works by itself. But there's a lot of interest in each of these three areas in using digital technologies to help understand our patients better, in monitoring our patients as they experience their illness to try to deliver better care, and in delivery of care itself. That's fantastic. And to continue off of the technology angle, one area that NIH is really dedicated to right now is in bridging disparities in health outcomes and in biomedical research. So, you know, on one hand, technology can 
help advance certain areas of health. But on the other hand, we have the digital divide where some individuals can't access telebehavioral health or specialized technologies and treatment. So how is your institute navigating these waters to make mental health research, clinical trials, and overall representation more equitable and diverse? That question has many different aspects to it. I'll try to unpack some of it. In terms of the digital divide and how it affects, say, telebehavioral health, we are actually studying that even right now during the context of the pandemic. There's evidence I already told you from these federally qualified healthcare centers that telehealth solutions can work to provide access to behavioral health care in the context of the shutdowns, et cetera. But we do see that individuals are accessing remote behavioral health care in these federally qualified healthcare centers are more likely to use plain audio visits over the telephone as compared to video visits, which require greater bandwidth and high-speed internet, et cetera. Whereas if you look at behavioral health that's delivered in the context of, say, a health management organization in an insured population, those individuals are equally likely to use telehealth as opposed to video-based health to get behavioral health care. So that's just one small example of how there are disparities or potential disparities in access to certain kinds of treatment. And we don't know if telehealth is better or less effective than video-based mental health delivery. And that's something we really need to understand because, of course, the potential for unequitable distribution of those two kinds of technologies. In terms of clinical trials and representation in the research itself, we work really hard to ensure that our investigators know that they have to have a representative sample including representation of underrepresented biomedical research minorities, including rural individuals in rural communities, including low socioeconomic communities. We really need to make sure that our, that our studies are getting knowledge from a wide variety of individuals that truly reflect the diversity of the U.S. population as a whole. That means that if we have clinical trials that are engaged in, say, digital phenotyping, the trials have to provide the digital hardware that those individuals need to be able to participate. So if we're doing a trial of a smartphone-based solution, we have to provide smartphones. If it's a Fitbit, it has to, we have to provide the Fitbits. Of course, how do we then take the results of that and apply them to communities where those resources are sparse? I think we have to recognize that when we want to use technologies or any other approach, that we need to be able to ensure we have a way of helping all individuals access those approaches. So it's not just about including them in the research, but having an implementation plan that will allow adoption of those treatments in a broad fashion. So when NIMH conducts research, yes, we conduct basic science research and translational research, trying to understand our illnesses and transform that understanding into new treatments, we also conduct implementation research. It's very community-oriented where we try to understand what will it take to implement these solutions in real-world settings. And an important component of implementation research, besides getting community buy-in, is also ensuring that there is an arm of that research that will enable us to assess cost-effectiveness. 
So if we have to buy everyone a Fitbit, does that $50 we have to spend on a Fitbit actually save money or at least have a clinical benefit that it would be worth those dollars that we're putting into the Fitbits? So that we make sure that there is a pathway for the system to be able to implement the research that we are uh, engaged in. Certainly. And, you know, before you were talking about how there are still huge hurdles that we have to overcome in certain areas of mental health, from the addressing the suicide rates in the country to the depression and anxiety and substance use disorders that we see going around. So what is in store at NIMH in the near and far futures to further learn about and hopefully address these mental health conditions? Well, let me let me take the suicide rates for a moment because um, I did open with that and it is a major priority. In the near term, it's really about finding ways to implement what we know works. And I'll give you two examples. One thing that we know works is what's called universal screening. If everybody who walks into an emergency room is asked, have you been thinking about harming yourself or killing yourself in the last two weeks? They're just asked that simple question. We double the number of people at risk that we identify. And if we pair that with some easy solutions, like some phone calls home over the next several months, then we know we can reduce the risk of those individuals by about 30%. So in other words, we have some very inexpensive, very easy to implement solutions that could have a significant impact on suicide rates in the United States. So how do we get them implemented? Well, it turns out that if you talk to emergency rooms, they don't mind asking that question. And they have the capacity to you know, provide phone calls home. But the problem is that if they ask the question and someone says, yes, I have been thinking about harming myself or I have been thinking about killing myself, they don't know what to do next. They don't have the psychiatrist on call in a rural hospital in order to be able to address suicidality. So we put out a call for research for evidence-based solutions that one can use to provide help or assistance to, to emergency rooms in these underserved areas. For example, can you do remote psychiatry consultation through emergency rooms? Can you provide guidelines, et cetera? And which of those work and which of those are implementable? So that's one thing that we're doing in the near term. Another thing that we're doing in the near term, there's this medication you may have heard of called ketamine. It is a drug that has recently been shown to reduce depressive symptoms in a very fast time frame within a few hours. And the other benefit it has is it also reduces suicidal thoughts in a matter of a few hours. How can that be used in real world settings to say avert hospitalization or keep someone safe until they can be seen by their psychiatrist or their mental health professional? So we put out a call for research and that seeks to understand, again, implementable solutions that can show how to use ketamine in acute care settings like emergency rooms and crisis centers to reduce suicide risk enough so that someone can be managed as an outpatient and doesn't need to go into the hospital. So those are two things that we're doing that the NIMH is currently engaged in right now. The research projects are active right now that we think can impact the care for individuals who are, who are having thoughts of suicide in the near future. What about the far future with suicide? What can we understand about the neurobiology of suicide 
that might give us new interventions that would be even more effective than ketamine or even more effective than the current psychotherapies that have been shown to reduce suicidality. Well, suicide is a behavior like any other behavior. Suicidal thoughts have a neurobiological basis. And that neurobiologic basis is the result of a decision-making process in the brain. And so these things that we think are associated with suicide, like despair or hopelessness, these are phenomenon that are occurring in the brain. Can we break down these complex phenomena, like despair or hopelessness, into biologically measurable phenomena that we can map onto the brain and figure out what brain mechanisms support these phenomena so that we could design treatments that reduce hopelessness, reduce despair, reduce the likelihood that someone will die by suicide. There's some really interesting ideas about how to do that. Just one in particular, recently a study that some scientists put together asked, might there be an element to which in the decision-making process of someone who is having thoughts of suicide, that they are biased towards trying to escape a negative situation, right? Suicide is the ultimate escape of a negative situation, of the dysphoria, of the despair. And so can we do that? Can we measure escape, the likelihood for an individual human being to try to escape from a negative situation? So they built a behavioral paradigm where you essentially do something like press a button to get out of an uncomfortable situation. And then they tested individuals with suicidality and individuals without suicidality and asked whether they had differences in their propensity to escape from a undesirable situation. And yes, the individuals with suicidality were biased towards escaping as opposed to other ways of coping with the negative situations. So that in its early days, but really trying to understand what is the brain basis for the various phenomena that might lead someone to attempt suicide so that we might understand those phenomena enough to develop treatments that would prevent suicide. Those are the kinds of things that we're interested in. So that's just you know a couple of near-term and far-term stuff that we're, we're doing in suicide. Of course, it's not good enough to keep someone alive. You want to try to treat their underlying mental illness that often leads to suicidal thoughts, whether it be depression, anxiety, substance use, post-traumatic stress disorder. And so we have near and far-term research in all those different areas. And lastly, as we're coming up on the end of our time together, we talked about what people can be doing to support themselves, but also what can we be doing to support each other throughout these really difficult times? Uh, that's it's so great, Melissa, that you asked that question. I think it's so important both for those others and also for ourselves. One of the greatest coping mechanisms when you are in the midst of a, a trying situation, a stressful situation, is to feel like one has efficacy over the situation and the ability to help others. So reaching out to support others can help us feel better. And of course, it can help others feel better as well. How can you do that? What should we be doing? And in the context of the pandemic, we talked a lot about the need to reach out to people around you, the people that you care about, because it's so much, it's not a matter of walking over to their house anymore. It's a matter of Zooming. It's a matter of scheduling an in-person visit outside with masks on to protect everyone. 
but really making an effort to reach out and communicate with people. Now, as we are in the midst of emerging from this pandemic, I think the same thing is still true, but the struggles are different. You may know somebody who's struggling with the decision about whether to get vaccinated or not. You may know someone who's struggling with the decision of whether to return to work in person or how to return to work in person, or maybe they've been told they have to return to work and they're feeling anxiety about it. So recognizing that that people need help, reach out to people, listen to what they're, ask them how they're feeling, and then ask them again, say, no, really, how are you doing? Listening to their response and helping them understand that what they're going through is common and that what, and that there's help for them available. And then again, if you see someone who's really struggling, who's having a hard time with what we call the activities of daily living, with getting out of bed, with making meals for themselves, caring for their children, doing their work. If you see someone who's struggling that hard, it's important to say, hey, you know, maybe you should ask your doctor about that. Or maybe you should talk to someone. Do you want, do you want me to help you find a therapist? Or do you want me to help you find a psychiatrist that you can meet with? Recognizing when sometimes we have trouble recognizing when we ourselves are in that deep, when we're having so much difficulty. And so reaching out to others around you when you see that they are and asking if they wouldn't like some help, that can be incredibly useful. Fantastic. I mean, it takes so much empathy and love to get through this moment and through all the tough moments. So I really appreciate you being here on the show. And um, good luck with all of the work that you do for everyone who needs that help out there. Well, thank you again for having me. It's it's such an important thing to do to, to try to increase awareness around mental illness, especially in these trying times. So I really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you today. Definitely. HealthCast is a production of Government CIO Media and Research. For more podcasts, head to governmentciomedia.com slash podcasts. If you liked what you heard, let us know by leaving a review in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. HealthCast is produced by Amy Kluber, hosted by Melissa Harris and Adam Patterson. If you're interested in sponsoring a podcast, contact us at sponsor at governmentcio.com.